Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, good morning to all of you here in the sanctuary and all of you who are watching from home. Let's take our Bibles in hand, whether you're here or there, and open together to the book of Daniel. We come today to chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9, and we are going to read in a moment the first 19 verses of this great chapter. Daniel chapter 9, I'll read verses 1 through 19. Scripture says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And so I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord. But to us, open shame, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath, which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. And thus he has confirmed his words, which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring us great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we've not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds, which he's done. We've not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, You've brought our people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day. We have sinned. We've been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sin and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all of those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. 
Oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city, which is called by your name. For we're not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, oh my God, do not delay. Because your city and your people are called by your name. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Well, when we last, when we last left Daniel... At the end of chapter 8, it was in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon. And he was killed, of course, by the Medo-Persians and was replaced by a man known as Darius the Mede. You remember that Daniel lived through a series of kings and empires. And no matter who was on the throne, whose seal was on the wall, Daniel always distinguished himself and was raised time and time again to high office. We know that just a few years into his tenure, Darius, who's described here in chapter nine, took note of Daniel's wisdom and skill as an administrator. And he had plans to put him charge of all 120 districts within the empire. The action of this chapter, chapter nine though, precedes that time. And it precedes of course, the time where Daniel was cast into the lion's den because of his refusal to pray to the king. And beginning in chapter seven, you recall, we had a series of prophetic visions that God gave to Daniel concerning the nation of Israel. Remember chapter seven was that vision of the beast that emerged out of that tumultuous sea, one after the other, the lion, uh, the bear, the leopard, and, and ultimately that indescribable monster we said was the Roman empire. And each of these beasts represented an empire. The, the, the bear, of course, was the Medo-Persians, uh, the leopard, the Greeks, the lions, the Babylonians, and, and that ten-horned monster was Rome. And then in chapter 8, remember he digs down a little deeper, gives us a little finer grain of what's going to happen, uh, specifically at, as it relates to two of the empires. This was the vision of the ram and the goat. Remember the ram had one horn that was stronger than the other. This again was the Medo-Persian empire. And he was defeated by that goat with the large horn emerging between his eyes. This horn, of course, was Alexander the Great. And just as it reached his zenith of power, the horn was broken off. Alexander the Great died in his very early 30s. And he was replaced by four horns or four generals, which divided up the Greek empire. And one of those that emerged uh, as a descendant of those original four was Antiochus Epiphanes. He was this small horn that boasted great things and of course did great harm to Daniel's people. And you recall as we ended chapter eight last week, Daniel's reaction to the devastation that was going to come to Israel even after they would be restored. It's found in verse 27, cast your eyes up there, chapter eight, verse 27, then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. And then I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision and there was none to explain it. And so it wasn't as if Daniel just shook it off and went back to normal. I, I think the memory of these visions remained with him and he thought of them every day and, and it drove him to do some things. So what would you imagine that Daniel would do as a result of, of having these visions of what was going to happen in the future? Maybe you would be tempted to uh, call a meeting. Maybe you would uh, write a book. 
Well, that's not what Daniel did. Again, look at the verse three verses of chapter nine. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, this is a few years after these visions. Uh, this Ahasuerus was, was Darius the Mede, who was made king over the kingdoms of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which were revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. And so what he did is he went to the Bible. Of course, he didn't have the, the full canon of scripture as we had. He had certainly the law. And by this time, Jeremiah had been accepted as part of the scripture. Now remember, Jeremiah is just a few years older than, than Daniel. Um, so what he did is he devoted himself, the scripture says, to prayer and to the word. And that reminds me of the New Testament, the book of Acts. The scripture says that the apostles, after Jesus ascended into heaven, after the Holy Spirit came in power, devoted themselves to two things, the word and to prayer. I recently uh, completed my 25th year of ministry since my ordination. Many things I think about ministry are still the same. I've noted some changes. The things that are the same is I still have a high view of scripture. I believe it's inerrant, it's sufficient, it's what we need. And therefore I believe in systematic expository verse by verse preaching. The thing that has changed is my understanding of the importance of prayer. Adrian Rogers says that the most important time of the week is not when the pastor stands in front of the people and tells them about God, but that time of the week when the pastor stands in front of God and tells him about the people. See, Daniel, though he was a prophet of sorts himself, though he was a bureaucrat, worked for the government by trade, he had a high view of scripture. And even though he received direct revelation himself, we find him pouring over the scrolls. That's the word for books here. Specifically, he was reading the book of Jeremiah. And I said Jeremiah was a little older than Daniel, but their paths might have and likely crossed back in Jerusalem when Daniel was a little boy before he was taken off into captivity. We know that Jeremiah was a man of God. And Jeremiah pleaded and begged with Israel to repent of their sins of idolatry and they would not. God gave him some very specific prophecy of what was going to happen. We don't know exactly the verses that Daniel is alluding to. I'm sure he read the whole book, but there are several places that allude to what was going to happen. I think maybe he was in Jeremiah 25. So if you want to move back towards the front of your Bible, several pages, you're going to come to the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 25, I want to read to you some verses that might have been the very verses that Daniel was reading that day, back 2,500 years ago. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 1. This is Jeremiah speaking. He says, The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Now, this is before they were taken into captivity. The son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem saying, from the 13th year of Josiah the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, these 23 years, the word of the Lord has come to me and I have spoken to you again and again, but you've not listened. Isaiah said, I've been preaching for 23 years the same message. I've been telling you if you don't repent, the Lord is gonna send destruction. 
verse four, and the Lord has sent to you all his servants. He says, not just me, many other prophets again and again, but you've not listened nor inclined your ear to hear saying, turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and dwell on the land, which the Lord has given to you and your forefathers forever and ever. And do not go after other gods to serve them and to worship them. And do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands. And I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, here it is, because you've not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. That is, I'm going to shut everything down. Worship, work, entertainment, everything. And this whole land will be a desolation and a horror. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon. Hear this, 70 years. And then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation declares the Lord for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans and I will make it an everlasting desolation. That's what piqued Daniel's interest. He, he likely recalled reading that. And so after his visions, he gets these scrolls, he starts pouring through and he says, there it is. He said, the Lord's going to take us into captivity, but the captivity is going to last 70 years. Now you understand that Daniel was in that first group who got taken off to Babylon in the year 605. This now, the first year of Darius was 538 BC. That means 67 years had passed. So Daniel did the math. He says that means there's only three years left and I'm sure that excited him. But you have to realize by this time that Daniel had grown old. He was an octogenarian late in the fourth quarter of life. And I'm sure he didn't hold out much hope that he would ever make that long, hard trip again back to Jerusalem, but his people would. His descendants, those that came after him, who were the Lord's people would occupy again the Holy Land and the Holy City. And what would your response be? Throw a party, celebration, call a meeting? We'll go back to Daniel 9 and we'll see what, what he did. Verse three, Daniel 9, three, and so I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Now, wait a second, Daniel, what's wrong with you? Don't, don't you believe in the sovereignty of God? Didn't you hear what Jeremiah wrote? Only three year, more years and Israel's going to be restored. Why would you need to pray and fast about that? Something God's already said he's going to do. Well, there, there's nothing wrong with Daniel. In fact, I think there's a lot right with Daniel. I believe that these verses, 1 through 19 of Daniel 9, is where we find the classic example of how God's people are to intercede for a nation in crisis. Make no mistake, Daniel's nation was in crisis. There had not been a sacrifice made at the temple in 67 years. The land, the farmland lay 
untilled and uncultivated. Uh, the animals were scurrying around the broken down walls of the city. All the while, God's people were in a pagan land. And so Daniel was driven to prayer. Now, I'm not an expert in prayer. We have men and women in our church who are. Uh, we have people who have written books and know much more about prayer than I do. But, but here's my understanding of how prayer works. The best my feeble mind can grasp it. We read the Bible, and in the Bible we find God's attributes, who He is and what He's like. We also find His promises. And then we pray those attributes and those promises to God, and then God responds to those prayers of His people. And here is a classic tension between God's sovereignty and, God's res and, and man's responsibility. What I mean by that is God's in control, isn't he? The Bible says he sits on his throne, he does whatsoever he wishes. And yet he commands his people to ask of him certain things. That is to, to pray and to humble themselves before him and come to him with their needs. In fact, he invites us to come with boldness into his throne room. And yet we know we can't change anything ourselves but we have the responsibility to be obedient to God. It's that same tension we find in salvation, isn't it? We teach here that God saves whomever He will. And yet at the same time, we pray for lost sinners, don't we? And we witness and we evangelize because we know that in God's sovereignty, He uses the means of humans, Christians, and their prayers to bring about His will. But before he brings change. There are some things that have to happen. And that's really what I want to stress this morning. Here is the pattern of how to pray for a nation in crisis. Number one, we have to come to terms with our own helplessness. How do we know that Daniel came to terms with his own helplessness? Because of his response to the word. Scripture says that he began to make supplications. That's a, a form of prayer in which we ask God for things that we can't do ourselves. And he showed his sincerity and his earnestness and his urgency and his humility through fasting. And not only fasting, that is refraining from food, but by wearing sackcloth. Sackcloth in the ancient world was a symbol of humility and contrition. You remember that when Jonah finally made it to Nineveh and preached judgment on that wicked city, the king of Nineveh, issued a proclamation in which everyone was to wear sackcloth and ashes, including the animals. He said, perchance, God will be merciful to us. He didn't assume upon that mercy. And so we see in the first three verses, uh, Daniel's understanding that uh, we're helpless. We can't change a thing. By the way, if the nation of Israel could have changed their situation, they would have done so in 70 years. <laughs> For 67 years, Nothing had changed. They remained in bondage and captivity. And I think this is a, a parallel to the human condition of sin, isn't it? We can't change our sinfulness. This is who we are. We sin because we're, we're sinners. We are in the bondage of iniquity, the scripture says. We are helpless to change ourselves. And the very first step of salvation is the recognition of that helplessness. 30 years ago, I went through lifeguard training. 
And it was a difficult couple of weeks. And I remember to this day, don't remember much of anything about that two weeks. I remember this. I remember them telling us over and over again, you cannot save anyone who believes they can save themselves. It's not until that person reaches a point of helplessness and they stop fighting you that you can pull them to safety. And this is what the scripture teaches about our souls. So long as we believe we can save ourselves, so long as we think we can be good enough or reform ourselves, we'll never be saved. Daniel had come to an end of that. He recognized the nation of Israel will never save themselves. And so he calls out to God. And so beginning in verse 4, going through verse 14, we see him declaring God's faithfulness. First of all, he says, we're helpless, but you are faithful. Look at verse 4. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. He is a covenant keeping God. The scripture says that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus, don't they? That is, he never lies. He cannot lie. Now, this is an incredible contrast between God and his people. He would make covenants with them and almost as soon as the ink was dried on it, they were breaking it. And yet he always remained faithful. He is altogether righteous. Look at verse 7. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord but to us open shame. Again, there's this contrast between God who does right because he is right and those who do wrong because their heart is sinful. And so Daniel's setting up this, this great contrast. God is altogether righteous. He does what is right because he is righteousness personified. And beyond that, his nature is of compassion and forgiveness. Look at verse 9. To the Lord, our God, belong compassion and forgiveness. For we rebelled against him. You know, the essence of idolatry, and God forbids idolatry. The first two commandments of the Ten Commandments have to do with idolatry. But we tend to think of idolatry as cutting down a tree and carving an animal and offering sacrifices and prayers to it. That's one form of idolatry. But the essence of idolatry, the Bible teaches, is believing, and thinking, and teaching things about God that aren't true or worthy. And we live in a society, though most people even to this day would claim not to be atheist strictly, they believe there's some higher power, most of your friends and neighbors. They have very wrong views of God. And, and those views of God are on a continuum, which range from God's a big teddy bear who wouldn't harm a fly, all the way to he's a brute and a taskmaster and rejoices in making people's lives miserable. And then everything in between. But here's what the Bible teaches about the nature of God. He is merciful and compassionate, isn't he? But he's also just. And see, we see those two things come together in perfect harmony at the cross. God hates sin. He has to punish it. He's not a teddy bear who pretends he doesn't see our sin, just ignores it. He can. He's too holy for that. But at the same time, he's not willing just to destroy us all. And so he sends Jesus, for God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so at the cross, his mercy and his justice kiss without one doing any harm to the other. He is perfectly merciful and he's perfectly just. But a lot of people get it wrong on either extreme. Some say I can sin and sin and sin and God's never going to do anything about it. And others say, if I step out of line just a little bit, he's going to crush me with an anvil. He's merciful and he's just. Many people presume upon his grace, though, to their peril. They think just because I've sinned and God hasn't done anything about it, I think he's never going to. The scripture says one day he will. He'll judge the living and the dead. And so what Daniel recognized is even though God's people were helpless in the past, God has always shown himself faithful. And so he says what we need to do, first of all, is confess our sinfulness. Look at verse 5. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from our commandments and, and ordinances. Now you note the pronoun Daniel uses. We he didn't say they, those people of yours, those wicked people that Jeremiah preached to, he said, we have sinned. Reminds us, doesn't it, of Isaiah, who was a great man, moral person, looked up to in the community as a leader in Judaism. When he had that vision of the Lord high and on his throne, the robes filling the temple, he didn't say, look at those people. He went down flat on his face and he said, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. We did it. We sinned. We rebelled. We, we committed iniquity. We acted wickedly. Now you'll note the rapid way, staccato fashion, machine gun fashion in which he's using different words for sin. And I think what he's getting across is that this was not a one-off thing. This was not a, an accident. This is a pattern of life that is very observable for all to see. This is per, pervasive sin, in other words. It's not an anomaly. So in verse 7, he says, we got exactly what we deserved. He says, righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame. And it was open shame, remember? Nebuchadnezzar not only brought the best and brightest as slaves back to Babylon, he raided the temple and took all their worship implements. That brought great shame on them. He says, as it is this day, we're still enduring this shame. To the men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, that is those that were left behind and those that are here and in other places in hiding, all of us are brought to shame. And verse uh, 10 and 11 seem to indicate um, they're still sinning. Verse 10 says, Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in the teachings which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. You remember that before the Israelites took the promised land. Before Moses died, he gathered them together and he had them read the curses and the promises of the law. 
that if you'll do this, if you'll obey me and you'll honor me, I'll bless you and give you the land. But if you're unfaithful, you start worshiping the idols and then this curse is going to fall on you. And Daniel is reminded of that. It rings in his ears every day. And he says, we did exactly what you told us not to do. You told us what would happen and it happened just as you predicted. I think one of the most important things to note here is in verse 14. He recognizes that their present condition is not a coincidence. It's not random in history. He recognizes the hand of God in it. Therefore, he says, after he's listed all the sins of the people, therefore means as a result of that, the Lord has kept the calamity in store. I get the picture there of he's been storing up judgment. Those 23 years and beyond, which Jeremiah said, repent or the Lord's going to judge. And they didn't repent. That wrath is just getting stored up. In fact, the Bible says in the New Testament that wrath against the day of wrath. And the way I picture that is of a, a dam, which is stopping up a river. You ever been out to the Hoover Dam? That incredible feat of engineering. And so here you have uh, the Colorado River coming against the base of that dam until it's made this great Lake Mead behind it. Can you imagine how many tons of pressure and force every day are against that steel and concrete? What would happen if suddenly that dam burst and that entire lake flooded down that river valley? It would be absolute devastation to everything in its path. That is the picture. For decade after decade, God sent prophet after prophet and said, repent. And instead of repenting, the people went on their merry way of sin and God's wrath built up and built up and built up. And one day the dam burst and it was absolute, utter and total devastation. And Daniel says, we got exactly what we deserved. He says, for the Lord, our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds, which he has done but we've not obeyed his voice. That is, we still have it up until this day, 67 days in captivity, and they were still sinning. So what's Daniel to do? That's bad news, isn't it? And by the way, when we share the gospel with people, we must tell them the bad news before the good news is good news. That they're a sinner, helpless and hopeless, the, the wrath of God abides upon them. And then we share the good news of John 3.16. And we do so by appealing to God's mercifulness. Verse 15, and now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day. We have sinned. We've been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayers of your servant and to the supplications. And for your sake, O oh Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. Did you hear what he's saying? He says in verse 15, I remember the past. I read how you brought our people out of Egyptian bondage and you provided everything they needed. Their shoes didn't wear out and you gave them manna from heaven to eat. You brought them to the water sources. 
You protected them from their enemies. That is, uh, even as wicked as the nation of Israel was, they still had a few bear stories. Charles Swindoll says we need to tell our bear stories to our children. What he meant by that was, you remember when the lad David went out to take some food to his brothers who were supposed to be fighting Philistines. And instead he found them and all of the nation cowering in their tents. And Goliath would come out day by day and blaspheme the name of their God and mock them and challenge them and no one was brave enough to go out. David said, I'll fight him. So they took him to King Saul and of course he laughed at him. What are you gonna do? You're just a boy. He's been a warrior since he was a boy. He'll rip you to shreds. And, and David said, well, I, I've got some history. When I was watching over my father Jesse's sheep, the lion and the bear would come and the Lord delivered them into my hands. He'll do the same to this blasphemous Philistine giant. That's his bear story. He had faith to fight Goliath because God gave him victory over the bear. What about you, friends? Do you have those experiences and times in your life? Do you have family stories? We, we all have gone through hard times. I, I often say here, this church is 138 years old, which means God has brought this congregation through two world wars, a great depression, a fire, a flood, a hurricane, and 15 years with me as your pastor. The Lord's graciously answered many a prayer here, hasn't he? And we need to remind each other of the faithfulness of God in the past. He says, in accordance with your righteous acts, plural, the many things you've done in the past for us, we believe you can do it again. And really this is the only basis for our prayer is found in verse 18. I think this is the key to the whole book of Daniel. In fact, I think it may be the whole key to life. Look what it says. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. Remember what he said so far? We're helpless and hopeless. You're faithful. You're merciful. That's who you are. That's the God you are. And so we boldly ask you to hear our prayer, not based on our merits because we don't have any. We ask you to answer these prayers for your good name because that's who you are. You've done it in the past and we depend on you doing it again. Friends, that's just the gospel, isn't it? Salvation is by what? Grace through faith. And what is faith? Faith is simply believing the promises of God revealed in the Bible. God has said in Jeremiah 25, I'm going to restore you after seven years. Daniel has faith and he believes that promise. And because he does, he takes it to God and says, do what you said you're going to do because you always keep your promises and you're merciful kind. And friends, dependence on God's character leads to bold prayer. When you're dependent upon your goodness and character, your prayers are, my prayers are weak, aren't they? 
But when we depend on God's character and his power, then we can pray the boldest and the most outrageous of prayers. And so listen to the confidence in verse 19 with which Daniel prays. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen. Take action for your own sake. Oh my God, do not delay. Because your city and your people are called by your name. I said this is a template and a model for how to pray and to intercede for a nation in crisis. Do I have to say the most obvious thing in the world? Our nation is in crisis. It's up to us, God's people, to pray. But we can't come to him and say, Lord, look how good we've been. You owe us. Remove COVID-19 from our land, oh Lord, based on our goodness. No, we have to humble ourselves as Daniel did. And by the way, and not say what those people did. We have to say, Lord, we're sinful. We're part of the problem. We've become prideful and arrogant, self-sufficient. But Lord, we recognize that, that we're helpless to change anything. I can't cure COVID-19, can you? I don't think there's anybody in our country that can. So we've got to come to a place of helplessness and, and say, Lord, we can't do it. We've tried and tried. If it's to be done, you have to do it. And we believe you can do it and will do it because you've done it in the past. <laughs> you brought us through two world wars, the Great Depression and a hurricane. We called out to you for mercy and you sent it. And so we call upon you to, to do it again, to heal our land. And so I'm asking you to join me in prayer, not just today, but ongoing earnest prayer. We've had to suspend our Wednesday night activities here since March, but uh, I'm saying a week from Wednesday, we're going to start having online prayer meeting. And so if you want to be a part of that in the bulletin and on the website, there's going to be a link. And uh, we're just going to get together at seven o'clock on Wednesday evenings and pray to the Lord. Repent of our sins and confess and ask him to, to heal our lands. Please be a part of that. Be a part of praying on your own. You, you don't have to wait. Daniel didn't call a prayer meeting. Did you notice? He just started praying on his own using plural pronouns like we and us. The Lord heard his prayer. And we don't know how much Daniel knew about it, but a few years later, God raised up another man named Nehemiah, didn't he? Who he sent down to Israel and through Nehemiah answered the prayers of Daniel. And they rebuilt the walls and they rebuilt the temple and they restored worship to Jehovah God where it had been desolate. Let's ask the Lord to do the same thing here. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And just like Daniel found hope in the book of Jeremiah, we find hope in the book of Daniel. Thank you, Father, that in your sovereignty, the Holy Spirit inspired men like Daniel and Jeremiah to write down your word and it's preserved to us until this good day. And it is pure 
and it is active and it's alive and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And so Father, we wanna be people of the word. Lord, we also wanna be people of prayer. Just as the apostles were, just as the prophets were, and just as the Lord Jesus was. And so Father, if there's anything within us that still believes we can change our own circumstances, will you wring that out of us? so that we become totally helpless before you. Father, we can't do anything about the circumstance of our country. We can't bring about peace between warring parties. We can't end the disease. Father, we can't do a thing. We're helpless in and of ourselves. Father, we are grateful that we serve one who can change things, who's as sovereign today as he's ever been. The same God who spoke a word and the planets spun into orbit. The same God who spoke the word through Moses and the sea parted. The same God who sent manna from heaven. The same God who rose up from the dead. Father, we beseech you based on your character, on your promises, and upon your attributes that you'd heal our land. Father, restore us spiritually, first and foremost. We confess our sinfulness, and it's it's us, it's not them, it's us that have been sinful, Lord. And it wasn't an anomaly, it wasn't a one-off, wasn't an accident, It's, it's a pervasive pattern of life in which we take your benefits and are thankless and prideful. Forgive us, Lord. Father, we pray also that you would restore us physically. Father, I pray you to heal those people that are being afflicted by the COVID-19. And Father, I pray, Lord, that we would learn from this. Father, I pray our children would remember it, not as some accident of history, but they would see your hand in it, Lord, and how their church family bombarded heaven with prayer and you answered those prayers. Father, I pray they'd be able to tell those stories to their children and grandchildren. Father, will you do this not for our sake, not because our merit, we have none, but for your name's sake. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.